Hi there, and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 2022 Lives Conference in Paris. Despite the ubiquity of their use in clinical practice, there is surprisingly little known about the inotropes we use. Antoine Kimoun is a professor of critical care medicine at the University of Lorraine in France, and he joins me to talk about these important agents. Antoine, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, thank you. Antoine, when faced with a patient who has severe heart failure or cardiogenic shock, at what point would you start considering the need for an inotrope? So thank you very much for this very interesting but difficult question. As you know, you will not decide to introduce an inotropic agent on only one parameter, but much more on a combination of parameters. The first step is obviously to check the volume status to exclude a hypovolemic shock. This is crucial as an inotropic agent such as dobutamine by its chronotopic beta-1 agonist effect will shorten the, di- the diastole and thus the end diastolic volume and by its beta-2 agonist effect will decrease arterial pressure. The overall effect will be a dramatic hemodynamic collapse. Thus, please check the volume status before starting any inotropic agent. Second, globally, you will consider introducing an inotropic agent on parameters reflecting the oxygen delivery, mainly cardiac index below two liter per minute met met square on the tissue hypoperfusion, mainly our star parameters like that with value above two millimole per liter. Other clinical parameters will strengthen the need of an inotropic agent, marbles, increase in CRT, oliguria, encephalopathy. In, constra- in contrast, be careful. Not all patients with a cardiogenic shock are hypotensive. The need of an inotropic agent should not be based only on the systolic arterial pressure. In this regard, I suggest to reread the SKY classification, which is very useful compared to, preview- to previous non-definition. With this classification, we'll have the strata from basically non-severe cardiogenic shock to refractory cardiogenic shock. What is interesting with this definition is the parameters which are associated with each stage. They are somewhat arbitrary, but ultimately also quite intuitive. For instance, in stage B, there is most often, but sometimes not, a relative cardiac-related hypotension, a cardiac index at 2.4, on no clinical sign of hypoperfusion, on no hyperlactatemia. Here, indication on of inotropic agent is not so obvious at all, as there is no tissue hypoperfusion. By contrast, the same patient with the same cardiac index at 2.4, but in this case, on hyperlactatemia at 3 millimole per liter, a systolic pressure below 85, a diastolic at 55 will most probably benefit from an inotropic agent aiming to restore the oxygen delivery. Antoine, when you're uh, administering an inotrope, what is it that you're actually trying to achieve? The basic answer will be the restoration of a cardiac output, which partially makes sense. For instance, with dobutamine, a strong beta-1 on a weaker beta-2 agonist Expected effects are an increase in contractility and in heart rate and thus in cardiac output. 
But in fact, restoring cardiac output is not the main target. The main target is to re restore tissue perfusion and to prevent organ dysfunction. Finally, I will be much more satisfied if in my shocked patients, marbles disappear, CRT normalize, and the lactate decreases. This is much more important than the sole increase in cardiac output. Moreover, when can we say that the increase of cardiac output is adequate? Most probably if clinical signs of hypoperfusion are disappearing. So definitely with inotropes, my unique goal is to restore tissue perfusion by increasing cardiac output. But the value of this increase is not as important as the tissue perfusion markers. Antoine, what uh, what inotropes are there and how do we classify them in their use in cardiogenic shock? Okay, I would say that we could classify inotropes in two categories, inodilatators and inoconstrictors. Inodilatators are agents with both positive inotropic and vasodilatator effects. Three molecules types are known, dobutamine, a synthetic catecholamine, levosimandin, a calcium synthetizer, and milrinone, a type 3 phosphodiesterase inhibitor. Inoconstrictor are molecules used to induce vasoconstriction in first and to increase cardiac contractility. The two best known agents are epinephrine and norepinephrine, two uh, catecholamines. As already stated, they are both used with the same goal to prevent and to, or to restore tissue perfusions. However, there are important differences in their indication. Uh, what are those key differences, Antoine? Thank you very much. Again, I engage the audience to read the sky definition on especially the Jack paper published one year ago. Stage C corresponds to cardiogenic shock patients with clinical and biological signs of hypoperfusion. In this stage, hypotension is not systematic. Specifically, physicians should look precisely the diastolic arterial pressures, which is in fact a key clinical factor to decide which molecule to prescribe. Let me explain. As already explained by Judith Oshman, the cardiogenic shock paradigm shifts from a pure mechanical pathophysiology to a much more complex and realistic mechanical and inflammatory pathophysiology. We are, known, we are now 100% sure that the most severe cardiogenic shocks are pro-inflammatory to a degree similar to septic shock. This inflammation with huge amounts of nitric oxide released is associated with a vasodilatory state. This was well described in a post-hoc study of the old shock trial in which severe systolic vascular resistance were weakly increased above normal values with, while very high values were expected. By oversimplifying this pathophysiology, the clinical severity marker of this inflammatory vasodilatory state could be resumed to the diastolic arterial pressure. Thus, most severe cardiogenic shocks will be uh, hypotensive, 
with both low systolic and diastolic, diastolic arterial pressures, for instance, 75 for C3 millimeter of mercury. By contrast, less severe cardiogenic shocks will be hypotensive with low systolic arterial pressure, but relatively preserved the diastolic arterial pressure, for instance, for instance, 80 of uh, 58 millimeter of mercury. In this case, um, systemic vascular resistance are most often frankly increased. Based on the diastolic arterial pressure, you will decide which molecule to prescribe. In case of stage C, with signs of hypoperfusions and relatively preserved diastolic arterial pressure, an inodilatator is probably indicated. In case of stage C, but in this case, with signs of hypoperfusions on very low diastolic arterial pressure, an inoconstrictor is probably indicated. It will increase the inotropic function and the vasoconstriction. Vasoconstriction will improve organ perfusion, but also, and this is very important, coronary perfusion mainly vascularized during the diastolic time. Honestly, the use of an inoconstrictor is intuitive in case of cardiogenic shock with low systemic vascular resistance and thus low diastolic arterial pressure. The use of an inodilatator is not so easy to understand. But basically, with an inodilatator, what you want is to increase the inotropic function, but also to decrease the afterload and thus increase your main goal, the global tissue perfusion. Antoine, that sounds like a, a really important function for inotropes, but are there any downsides that we need to be mindful of? There are many, many downsides associated to their use. Let's start with inodilatator and the most used one, dobutamin. First, dobutamin has never been tested versus placebo in a RCT, including cardiogenic shock patients. This is crazy, but it's a fact. Having said this, there are some evidence that dobutamin use might be associated with an increased mortality in cardiogenic shock patients. In the old ALARM HF study published in Intensive Care Medicine one decade ago, after propensity score adjustment, cardiogenic shock patients receiving dobutamine or, at this time, dopamine, had a 1.5-fold greater mortality compared to those who did not. But more recently, in a post-hoc study of the Doremi RCT, arrhythmic events occurred in approximately one half of patients with cardiogenic shock treated with dobutamine. Milrinon, which was compared to dobutamine in the Doremi RCT, has similar adverse events. Finally, when compared to dobutamine, levosimander, a calcium synthetizer, is associated with higher incidences of atrial fibrillation on hypokalemia. Let's continue with norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is an inoconstrictor whose use is associated with also same adverse events such as atrial fibrillation, limb ischemia at high doses, and some experimental and clinical evidence suggests, mainly in sepsis, to be honest, that norepinephrine might dysregulate the immune response. Epinephrine is also an inoconstrictor. 
its main side effects uh, are also arrhythmic events and limb ischemia at high doses. But due to its beta-2 adrenergic strong agonist effects, epinephrine is associated with an hyperlactatemia not related to the severity of the hypoperfusion, but to NAK ATPase activation. Lactate clearance monitoring is in practice impossible when epinephrine is prescribed specifically in the first hours after cardiogenic shock management. Antoine, is there any evidence uh, for specific inotropes, either against placebo or in head-to-head comparisons? How do they compare? Two important parts. Comparison of dobutamine with other inodilatators, such as the levosimondan and milrinan. Levosimondan has been tested in many large uh, cities against dobutamine or placebo in patients with decompensated heart failure, septic shock, on the low cardiac output syndrome after cardiac surgery, but to date, never in cardiogenic shock. In the SURVIVE trial from the Mebaza team, levosimondan was compared to dobutamine. 1,327 patients hospitalized with acute decompensated heart failure who required inotropic support were included. The population included was clearly not a population of typical cardiogenic shock. Values of systolic arterial pressure, heart rate, lead ventricular ejection fraction were all consistent with an acute heart failure pattern. The main result was that compared to dobutamine, there is no effect of levosimondan on a risk of 180-day mortality. But in, a, in the future, the French level heart shock trial from my team will um, try comparing early use of levosimondan versus dobutamine and will include at least stage C cardiogenic shock patients. Milrinone. Milrinone has been also tested against dobutamine in the Doremi study. In this study, authors randomly assigned patients with cardiogenic shock to receive milrinone or dobutamine in a double-bind fashion. The primary outcome was a composite outcome, including, among others, in-hospital deaths on receipt of a cardiac transplant or mechanically circulatory support. 192 patients were included. Authors did not find a significant advantage of milrinone over dobutamine with respect to the composite primary outcome. Finally, as stated in the ESC guidelines, there is no clear indication on which first-line inodilatator should be prescribed. However, to be honest, for most of us, dobutamine remains the most frequently prescribed. I will not speak on dopamine, but I hope that dopamine is an is a old story and today abundant. For those interested in, have a quick look to the Debecker study in the New England Journal. Now uh, we will speak on uh, inopressors. Comparison of Epinephrine on norepinephrine cardiogenic shock has been tested a few years ago by our team in Nancy in this prospective double-bind multicenter randomized study. Epinephrine on norepinephrine were compared in patients with cardiogenic shock after 
acute myocardial infraction. Dobutamine could be added at physician discretion in the two groups. The primary efficacy outcome was cardiac indexed evolution. The sample size was small, with only uh, 57 patients included. On the first main result, over the first 70 hours, there was no difference in mean arterial pressure and cardiac index. Thus, one first conclusion is that there is no difference in reaching hemodynamic targets with these two molecules. However, this similar cardiac index evolution between epinephrine and norepinephrine group has a cost with a much higher heart rate in the epinephrine group compared to norepinephrine. Authors also found more refractory cardiogenic shock in the epinephrine group compared to the norepinephrine group. Finally, in the last ESC guidelines for the management of acute heart failure, including cardiogenic shock, recommend the use of norepinephrine in the first place or in hypotensive cardiogenic shock patients. Epinephrine remains probably useful as a rescue therapy before ECMO implantation, for instance. Antoine, once you've made the decision to start an inotrope, how do you measure the response? What, what are you looking for? Uh, so uh, you speak about how you monitor their progress, lactate, capillary refilling time, diastolic pressure, or uh, some data on cardiac output. All of them are useful and should be used in the follow-up of cardiogenic shock patients. Honestly, lactate remains highly reliable, but keep in mind that lactate could be also increased by other etiologies, such as, for instance, mesenteric ischemia, which is quite frequent in, in this situation of cardiogenic shock. For the arterial pressure, we only target with norepinephrine a mean arterial pressure between 65 to 75 millimeters of mercury, grossly. Arterial pressure will not be very useful to ensure the effectiveness of inotropes. Among all markers, CRT is a seducing one. We recently published with a Strasbourg team uh, in the Blue Journal, a small prospective study investigating the role of CRT for the prognostic of cardiogenic shock. We found that in the first 48 hours, a prolonged CRT is strongly, very strongly associated with 90-day mortality. Finally, cardiac output is also interesting, but could be difficult to monitor. Echocardiography requires experience and has an important inter-observer viability. Other devices are invasive. Finally, if monitoring the cardiac output is important, specifically in the first hours to adapt the management, keep in mind that for one patient, the correct cardiac output is the one that allows a correct organ perfusion on no more. Finally, Antoine, Having just been through a night shift yourself with a patient who has cardiogenic shock, what is your approach to practice in this area? So in practice, in our ICU, we monitor the cardiac output at least once a day by echocardiography. As many of our patients are treated with VA ECMO and thus other devices are not indicated. Lactate in the first 48 hours 
uh, is measured three times a day. And then according to the evolution, very difficult to say after 48 hours. By contrast, marbles on capillary refillation time are measured every time the patient is examined. So very often by nurses, by physicians, by students, by everyone. Antoine, thanks very much for joining us and sharing your immense knowledge on this topic. Um, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. All of OSLA's content and features are completely free. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook, and any OSLA learning you do is automatically recorded in your CPD diary. Search for MyOSLA wherever you get your apps, or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.